How are you? All right. Glad to hear it. Uh, I'm Tim. If you didn't see me earlier, I'm back. Hi. Uh, so we are in the last week of our series on the book of Exodus, and we went all the way to the end of the book last week, but we're going to go back to the 10th plague today in chapter 12, because who doesn't love a good plague? Um, now, we're actually not going to look at the plague necessarily. We're going to we're going to look at the, the Passover, and uh, we'll do that here in a brief moment, but in order to get us thinking, or at least get me thinking, um, I've been thinking. I don't know about any of you, but if, if I participate in something, I have a greater tendency uh, to immerse myself in whatever it is that I'm participating, whether I'm learning something or whatever. Like, one of the worst things that you probably could experience with me is trying to play a board game with me if I've never played it before. And it's got like, I don't know, there are board games out there where it feels like the rules take 10 hours to explain and the game takes about 30 minutes to play. Uh, that's a bit of an exaggeration, but I'm not that far off. It might just take 10 minutes to explain because the person's trying to explain it to me or 10 hours and I, I'm just not comprehending. But I'm more of a get in the game and start playing and learn as you go kind of guy. Like, has anybody played Settlers of Catan before? All right. Good on you. I don't know how to play that game still and I've played it several times. And primarily it's because every time someone tries to explain it to me, I have a tendency to zone out, which is really just bad to admit to, but I'm just being honest. But in all sincerity, I figured out how to play it because I played along and I figured out, and I would ask questions, and even though the person that I was asking the questions of would probably think to themselves, I explained this at the beginning, they still had a bit of grace and I learned along the way. And I think most of us are like that where being actually in and doing something helps us to appreciate, to learn, and, and to grow in whatever it is that we're doing. And I'll give you a real-life example recently. So, I don't know about you, but we had a lot of leaves fall on trees, and there's leaf cleanup to have to do, you know? Got to blow them somewhere. And so, um, in, in my neighborhood, uh, we're supposed to pile up the leaves at the end of like the curb and the city comes in and they, they take them all away. I wish I could say that it was that they magically took it away, but sometimes the traffic in the neighborhood is interesting on those days. Dodging leaf piles and things that could smash you in your car is fun. Uh, but anyway, so, like, you have to get the leaves out in a timely fashion. And sometimes when I'm under the pressure to get something done, I have a tendency to want to just do it myself and get it done fast. But my son is four, and he wants to be out there when I'm doing the yard work. More precisely, he wants to get in the line of fire from the leaf blower when I'm trying to blow the leaves into a very tight, concentrated area. 
He wants to get in the line of fire so that his shirt will get blown all about and his hair will get blown all about and he will just laugh endlessly. I'm pretty sure if there was like max turbocharge on the leaf blower and it blew him over and caused him to tumble, he would laugh hysterically if that happened. And so like I'm trying to get the job done and it's easy for me to get like, I know you're having fun, but this isn't fun. I want to get it done. Get out of the way and all that sort of stuff. But we took a different track this time. Had him get a rake. And we have a, like a little outdoor trash can that we would pile the leaves in and then we would carry them over and we would uh, put the leaves where they belong. And I started to notice something with Leo. He enjoyed raking the leaves. And he didn't just turn it into a game. He would be super proud of himself when he successfully got a giant pile of leaves into the can and his space was clean. And then he would even help me push the, uh, the, the uh, container of leaves, the, the uh, trash can of leaves, and, and even get behind it when I was lifting it up to dump the leaves out. And he enjoyed this so much that the next day, when for a brief 15 minutes there were no leaves in the yard, because more fell that fast, he wanted to go out again and do the same thing. Which, after you've done leaves for a long time in your life, that doesn't sound fun. But he was so invested in what we were doing that he learned to do it right. He took pride in doing it the right way. He had a good experience, and he wanted to relive and remember and even participate in that experience again. And uh, I try to remember that, that that's the best way to like, get kid to do chores. That's a lot better than arguing with them to pick up their toys endlessly or whatever. Like, but anyway, I realize that that stuff kind of works. But I think for most of us, we are that way. If we get involved and invested and participate in something, we take ownership of it, we, we grow in fondness of the activity, we enjoy the fruits of our labor, we may remember fondly uh, what happened in the past. And it doesn't have to just be chores. It can be any kind of moment in life that you participate in. It's that word, participation. And it's an interesting word when we think about the story that we're going to look at today in the book of Exodus. Because I don't know if you've ever thought about the Exodus story, like just sat and thought about God and what we believe about God and his actions in the story. But one thing that always captures my attention about God is recognizing what he could do because he's God and what he chooses to do and how those two things can be different and there's purpose in what he chooses to do versus what he could do. See, in the Exodus story, God hears the cries of the people. They are enslaved. They're under duress. And they long for their freedom and to be out of the bondage and out from under the thumb of their Egyptian rulers. And God hears their cries. And he decides he's going to do something about it. 
And he calls Moses and Aaron. He sends them on their way. And they're to go confront Pharaoh. And Pharaoh's not going to relent. So God says, I'm going to make him relent. I'm going to dull out these ten plagues. And after the tenth one, he'll relent. Albeit briefly, because he'll decide to pursue after the people have fled. But in the tenth plague, God determines that he's going to wipe out the firstborn of the Egyptians. And when you read the story, which we're about to look at a portion of it, you realize that God has basically decided, I'm going to wipe out all the people in this region that is Egypt, the people that live here. And so really everybody that lives there, even the Israelites that are still living in that area, are in harm's way. But I don't know if you've ever thought about the fact that God devises a plan to protect the Israelites from what's coming. And I don't know if you've ever read that story and thought, why did he need to devise that plan in the first place? After all, in Luke 12, Jesus, when he's uh, telling uh, people not to worry, he, he basically says, God knows the number of hairs on your head, which for me, like, you didn't have to count much. But, <laughs> I know, I always just cheap laugh. Um, the, the thing is, is that for God to know the very number of hairs on your head, surely God can just decide, and eh, who's in that house, I'm passing it over. And I know who's in that house, but I'm passing it over. Oh, then I know who's in that house. I'm not passing that one over. You see where I'm going with this? And if you know the story, that's not how God accomplishes it. He has the Israelites do some very specific things that we're going to look at a summary section on in order that God will pass over and thus protect the firstborn in the home. And it raises a question, maybe it doesn't for you, maybe you just take it in stride and that's wonderful, but for me it raises the question, why? Why did God choose to go that route when he is God and knows all and is fully capable of not involving the Israelites' participation in their protection? Yes, that's my key word today, participation. So let's look at Exodus 12. 21 through 28. And we're going to look at this because basically, as is often the case, God tells Moses the plan, and then Moses delivers the plan to the people. And in good cases, the people act on the plan as God commands. In some cases, as you know, the Israelite story, they don't always act on the plan, and it creates some problems. But in this particular case, they act on the plan. And so we're going to pick up at verse 21, where Moses calls together the people uh, to tell them the plan. And this is what it says. It says, Then Moses called together all of Israel's elders and said to them, Go pick out one of the flock of your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it into the blood that is in the bowl, 
and touched the beam above the door and the two doorposts with the blood in the bowl. None of you should go out the door of your house until morning. When the Lord comes by to strike down the Egyptians and sees the blood on the beam above the door and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over that door. He won't let the destroyer enter your houses to strike you down. You should observe this ritual as a regulation for all time for you and your children. When you enter the land that the Lord has promised to give you, be sure that you observe this ritual. And when your children ask you, what does this ritual mean to you? You will say, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord. For the Lord passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt. When he struck down the Egyptians, he spared our houses. The people then bowed down and worshipped. The Israelites went and did exactly what the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron to do. So, in, in these situations, God has devised a plan to protect the Israelite people that are in their homes from facing the destruction of the firstborn that the Egyptians are about to face. And again, as I said at the beginning before we got into the passage, it's very obvious that the way God is accomplishing this is he's being very regional. He's, being, he's thinking about the, the space and he's just going to destroy the firstborn. And by the way, it's not just the firstborn people, it's the animals. It's, this is not going to be a good situation. It, it's going to cripple the social and economic infrastructure. And not only that, but produce great mourning for the Egyptian people. This is devastating on many levels. And yet God has decided that he is going to spare his own people. But he's got a very particular way that he's going to do this. They are to sacrifice a lamb, and they are to have the blood drain into a bowl. And, and every family, by the way, the Israelite families, are all expected to participate, so they're supposed to take their cho choice, their firstborn animal, and do this. And they're going to take the, the blood from the bowl or the basin they're going to get this, uh, this hyssop branch and uh, they're going to use it to smear the blood on the doorposts and on the beam. And it's very specific here that, you know, there's, there's the beam above and, and some of this isn't just for look, it's, it's for supportive purposes because of the way that these people in their nomadic state dwelt in their homes uh, whether it be caves or, or structured stone buildings, whatever it is, they've got these support beams and this crossbar at the top, and the blood is being smeared on there. And, and uh, you know, I don't know if you sit and think about this, but it's, 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 it's a gross story. Like, if you, you, you think about, you know, beams on a door, and you just think about getting paint because you want to change the color, maybe. Or maybe touch it up or whatever. No, they're 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 putting blood. Uh, the the blood. Sorry, it grosses me out. But that's how serious the situation is. So they're putting blood on here as a mark, and then they're told to go in and stay in until morning. Why? 
Well, there's, there's two satisfactory reasons. The, the first one's the most important, but the second one isn't less. The first answer to the question of why is simple. God said to. <laughs> P- part of the, the whole deal with the Exodus story is that God is going to rescue his people, but he's not just going to give them unabashed freedom They are going to be people that worship and honor him with their whole being. So there's a give and take here. I'm going to free you from bondage from these bad rulers, and I'm going to free you to serve a good God. And so at every turn, there is a constant refrain of, do as I tell you to do and it will go good for you. Deviate and it will not. So, God saying to do it is good enough for why. But God gives us the second why in the story, in the way that he tells Moses to tell the elders, to tell the people what they're doing. And that is that they are to continually participate in this Passover ritual in the years that follow. And not only are they supposed to participate, it turns into a whole seven-day festival sort of situation, which is actually really intriguing if you think about it, because uh, everything that God has them do in this situation is done in haste. <clears throat> They're not, they don't have time to put yeast in their bread so that it can have time to rise, so they have to have unleavened bread so they can get out of Dodge quickly. They have to quickly do this sacrifice get it on the doorpost and the frame and get in the house very quickly because the destruction is coming. There's a lot of speed with which this needs to be done. And yet God still asks them to participate. And then he asks them to continually participate in the ritual of remembrance as they move forward. So much so that they want their children and their children's children to not only participate, yes, I know, I keep emphasizing that word, they want them to participate in the ritual so that, so that, when they ask, why are we doing this? It's because the Lord brought us out of Egypt. Which is also interesting, because as you move forward in generations, Us is a peculiar word to use because if you were a kid that wasn't around at the time that they were enslaved in Egypt, you weren't part of that. There was a rabbi that once wrote in some of the traditional Jewish material something to the effect of that people uh, should participate in these remembrances so much so that those that were participating, it was as if they were part of the original event in the first place. And so they continued to do this Passover celebration uh, with the, the food items, the unleavened bread, the lamb, everything moving forward, constantly looking back on this event where God delivered them. But the important thing here is that from the get-go, God asked them to participate in their own deliverance despite the fact that God could have delivered them on his own without their participation. Do you realize that? What God can do, 
It's not what he chose to do. He chose to invite the people to play a role in their story of deliverance. It's kind of like if I'm out doing yard work and I feel like my kid's going to keep me from getting it done as fast and I could just do it on my own, there's greater benefit in the long run to me inviting my son to participate in the work because now I'm setting him up to continue the work and to pass on the work of doing leaf work moving forward. And I didn't get that idea because I'm a smart guy. My dad had me participate in the same stuff when I was a kid. And you know what? His dad had him participate in the same stuff. And I think you can see where I'm going. I don't know how many generations my family goes back, but at some point, the participation of cleaning up your yard of sticks and leaves just carried on. And I just, because it was ingrained in me, passed it on to my kid, even though it would have felt faster to get it done on my own and I could go back to doing things that aren't involving chores with leaves. God could have done this on his own, but he invited the Israelites to participate in his plan for their deliverance. And he didn't just ask them to participate in that one time, but to continue the tradition again and again and again in this festival of remembrance so that they could continue to tell the story of what a good and gracious and loving and saving God they served. And it would cause them not only to remember, but to want to continue to participate in active faith and honor and worship of that same God so that they could have experiences in living life with Yahweh as well. And if you remember last week, we pointed out that though the story of the Israelites, and I mean by the story the particulars of being an Israelite person, a Jewish person of that time and moving forward, aren't necessarily our story, but Yahweh, the one true God, is our God. And what God does then, God still does, and he still is the same God that he was then. Except that God did things in a new way moving forward. And here's the beauty of what God did. Is that because God not only is always a saving and loving God that desires for people to be upright and to make a way for them to be upright, he is also a God that chooses to invite us to participate in his acts of deliverance. Don't believe me? Well, I know you're probably not sitting here like, I don't believe this at all. But anyway, just for sake of argument, in Romans chapter 6, verses 3 through 4, the Apostle Paul writes the following. It says, Or don't you know that all who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried together with him through baptism into his death, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too can walk in newness of life. In what God has done through his son Jesus, he has invited a way for us to actually participate. When we are baptized, we are participating in the death and resurrection of Jesus. 
with the opportunity to continue our participation by walking in newness of life. It gets further. When Paul talks in 1 Corinthians <coughs> about communion, which we'll take here uh, shortly, he says the following in verses 23 through 26. He says, I received a tradition from the Lord, which I also handed on to you. See, God really loves passing down this remembrance stuff. He says, On the night on which he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread after giving thanks. He broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this to remember me. He did the same thing with the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Every time you drink it, do this to remember me. And then Paul adds, Every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you broadcast the death of the Lord until he comes. When we participate in the things that we call sacraments, or at least people throughout church history have called sacraments, uh, being when you are baptized, when you are immersed underwater and brought back up out of water, and when you take communion, you drink of the cup and eat of the bread as Jesus commanded, you are participating in acts of obedience to God that were part of his plan for our deliverance. Because God is the same as he was back in the Exodus. When he asked the Israelites to participate in the Passover sacrifice, to put the blood on the frame and the doorposts, and to go in their homes, God could have done it all on his own, and we could just be bystanders, being grateful for what God has done, and having no part to play, but God has decided to have his people participate. And in the same way, he has invited us to participate in our salvation. God did it of his own accord by grace, by sending Jesus free of our own doing, but he invites us to respond in participating not only in these sacraments, but in daily steps of obedience of faith. And every time we do that, we pass the story on to those near us, to those that will come after us, and we invite them into the same level of participation in faith that we are partaking in ourselves, just like the Israelites were invited to do way back after they called out to God for his salvation and mercy from the hands of the Egyptian slave masters. What a wonderful and glorious God he is. That he would do what he has done in grace and that he would invite us to play a role. See, God doesn't just write the story. He invites us to play a role in it, too. And that is a wonderful, wonderful message, not just to reflect on what he did in the Exodus, but what he did when he sent his one only son. And what he did when he raised his son from the dead and what he did when he sent the Spirit to dwell within us, and what he continues to do by emboldening us and empowering us to live out our faith daily. And that is a wonderful message to consider as we move on from the Exodus story into the Christmas season. Because at its core, we do all sorts of things that we participate in. Maybe you have, tr family, trans uh, maybe you have family traditions, and maybe you do gifts, 
And maybe you hang lights. And maybe you put up trees. And maybe you go sledding. My kid really loves drinking hot chocolate. Too much. Maybe you do that. Maybe you do all these things that give you the warm and fuzzies. Maybe this season isn't so warm and fuzzy because you have had a really rough time in life. But maybe those things can give you a little bit of hope, a little bit of remembrance on what you might have lost before. You do these things to remember and to continue to participate moving forward. But there's a majorly important aspect to this season for those of us that call ourselves disciples of Jesus. And that is that we remember that God sent his one and only son to forgive us of our sins and to give us abundant life. We are about to enter into a season where we remember and where we participate to continue to live out the story that he has invited us to have a role in and to continue to pass the story along to those near us and those who will come after us. And when we do that, we are playing a role in perpetuating a story that God has chose to write and chose to involve us in, all by participating in simple, small acts of faith, obedience, and remembrance. Because that's the kind of God that he is. We may not have been around for the exodus, and for most of us, I'd say we're probably pretty grateful that we didn't have to live through it. It wasn't exactly a fun time. But we do get to remember the story and thank God that he is the God, not only behind the exodus, but more importantly, behind sending his son Jesus so that we can have life. And that is a God worthy of being praised. And he is a God worthy of living out our life for each and every day. I hope that when you came in, you got a communion packet. As I said, we'll take communion. And when we take communion each week, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11, we not only do as Jesus commanded when he told his earliest followers to take this and eat and to take this and drink in remembrance of him, but Paul says that when we do this, we proclaim to one another the story of the God of deliverance. It may be something that we get so accustomed to doing each and every week that's just a part of our act of worship, and that's a good thing to a degree. But sometimes it's good to remember that we are not just passive participants and remembering what Jesus did, but we are active participants and remembering and telling the story again and again and again. This is just one small act of obedience and what is hopefully a life full of them as we're called to. And so I invite you to ponder who God is and what he's done and what he's invited us into and the way he's made for us to say yes to it with each and every day, each and every word, and each and every action. And after we've taken a moment to stop and reflect, we will take communion together as one church family.
I invite you to take and eat of this bread. This is his body which is given for us. And I invite you to take and drink from this cup. This is his blood which is poured out for us. Please pray with me. Dear Lord God, I thank you so much for being who you are, for being a God of justice and being a God of grace, for being a God who wants us to have good, just, full lives, lives uh, positioned to honor you. And we thank you that uh, throughout history you have shown yourself to be a God that not only desires to make a way, but invites us to put one foot in front of the other uh, to take the steps on the way that you make. And I thank you that you not only do that, but that you don't leave us alone to take those steps. that you uh, give us your spirit so that we can be emboldened and and empowered to to take those steps and that you give us each other so that we can spur one another on, so that we can continue to tell the story, to continue to remind, to uh, continue to encourage. And I thank you, God, that you have made a way, showed a way, and led the way for us. And I thank you that as we can reflect back on the story of your people coming out of Egypt, we can also look ahead as we begin to celebrate this season, remembering your son Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, coming into this world. And I pray, God, that no matter where we are at, whether this is a season we we look forward to or one that uh, because of the hardships of life we are are gritting our teeth and just trying to bear through it. God, I pray that the message of your love for us will be at the forefront no matter where we are coming from and that we can keep fixed on you. We love you and it's in your son Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.